The topic today, of course, is emptiness. And it's one of the big issues in Buddhist wisdom, Buddhist discernment. And so it's good to get a general context of how the Buddha viewed issues of wisdom and issues of discernment, particularly the role of how you view things. Um, the Buddha was primarily a problem solver. There was one big issue in life that he wanted to deal with, which is the issue of suffering, stress, and particularly this unnecessary suffering we create for ourselves. And as any good problem solver knows, you have to focus very carefully on what's really important in re- with regard to that problem and ignore everything else. Um, classic example I was reading about recently was an administrator came into the Cook, uh, Cook County General Hospital in Chicago several years back. And because it's a public hospital and treats a lot of people without um, insurance, the hospital had a huge problem with its intensive care unit. Lots of people coming in reporting symptoms of heart attacks and only a few intensive care units to put them in. And so the question is, how do you figure out who's really having a heart attack and who's just suffering indigestion or whatever, but it's, but it's not crucial to have intensive care. And <clears throat> he had read that year, pre- years previously, someone had done a study of the main factors for dealing with a heart attack. Someone comes in and they said, first you take the EKG, then you look at their was it systolic pressure? Is that the high one? Yes, systolic. systolic. If it's if it's 100, under 100, they're in danger. If there's liquid in the lungs and if the pr- pain is erratic, you've got a heart attack. And if it's no to any of those, you probably don't. Yeah. And so we called all the heart specialists together and said, look, I mean, this, um, let's try this to sort of streamline the process of bringing people in. The doctor said, no, you've got to know you know, whether they smoke, whether they're under a lot of stress, and a lot of other factors as well. And they refused to go along with the project. So he said, let's try it this way then. Okay, for the next three years, you do it your kind of seat-of-the-pants way. And then the three years following, we'll, we'll determine entrance into the intensive care units totally on these three factors. So when they compiled the results after six years, they discovered that going kind of seat-of-the-pants, they had a 70% rate of accuracy. If they narrowed all the factors down, they get over 90% rate of accuracy. So many times we take too many things into consideration, too many things, issues come in and they get in the way of the particular problem we're trying to solve. And that's precisely the Buddha's approach on emptiness. He's using emptiness as a way of narrowing down the issues that he wants you to focus on. And he does this, though, in a complex way. This is why the, the topic is going to be complex today. How do you narrow these things down and why? But you look at his teachings, and particularly the role of wisdom and views. First, he says the question, it's right there on your sheets. This is the first question that leads to discernment. And the important one is that very last one. What, when I do it, will be for my long-term welfare and happiness? That's the issue. Because everyone is looking for happiness. It's taken as kind of a constant across the the realm of living beings, is that we all want happiness. However, we have different ways of conceiving that happiness and different ways of conceiving how the best way of getting there is going to be. Um, Psychologists have done studies to show that when people see that a particular way of pursuing happiness is not worth it, they'll drop it. In other words, if the cost is too high, either in terms of the effort that's put in as opposed to the results that get out, or the damage that's done, then they'll drop that particular way of looking for happiness and try to find another one. 
The problem they discover, though, is that people are really bad at figuring out the costs. You, know, you see lots of cases like this, drug addicts, Lexus addicts, status addicts. Um, you can just go down the list, the, way pe- the, the very destructive ways that people look for happiness in their lives. <coughs> and so what the Buddha wants to do, and particularly in his teachings on the Four Noble Truths, is to make us more and more sensitive to the costs of the way we look for happiness. In fact, this is the role of any, any wise teacher, because most people have the, don't have to be told that they want to look for happiness. Even worms look for happiness in their own way. <coughs> but the problem is that we tend to not really consider the, the ramifications of what we're doing and not really look carefully at what we're doing. And this is a lot of what the Buddha is aiming at in his teaching. His first sermon starts by describing three courses of action for looking for happiness, either sensual indulgence, or self-mortification, kind of self-torture, and then what he calls the middle way. Of those three, only one, he says, really leads to total happiness. And the middle way starts with what he calls right view, because the way you view things is going to determine what you do, how you conduct your strategy to find happiness, and particularly how you view the nature of action itself. What can your actions do? What can you actually do to create happiness and how much of it is totally beyond your ability to affect in any one way or another? So the question he has you do as you, re- as you look at any course of action is how, how effectively does this lead to happiness? How effectively does this put an end to suffering and stress? And for the Buddhists, this is, you know, this is the essential question in, in wisdom and that the role that discernment plays is learning how to gauge your actions. Do they really produce the happiness you're looking for, or do they not? So what that means is you have to learn how to look at what you're doing. And particularly, he says, look at your intentions. We'll go into this a little bit later, but that second passage on the front page is just this issue. Look at your intentions. If you see that the intention is harmful, you don't follow it. If it looks like it's going to be okay, you can put it into action, but you have to monitor the results that you're getting while you're doing it. Because sometimes something that looked harmless to begin with actually turns out to be harmful later on. Then when you, if, if it looks like while you're doing it is causing harm, stop doing it. If you don't see any harm, you can continue with your action. If, however, after you've completed the action, you've got to learn look back at the results, long-term results of the action. And if you see that harm was done, then you have to resolve you're not going to repeat that particular type of action again. You know, what does Buddhism have, Buddhism have you look at? It has you look at what you're doing and the results of what you're doing. That's where he wants you to focus your attention. And if, you, if your attention strays out away from that area, he says, you're missing the whole issue. When the Buddhists have a critique, critique of non-Buddhist um, teachings, this is particularly the issue that they critique them on. Is, okay, when you follow that particular teaching, where does it lead? This is the way, that, the way they have you test for what's a, a good teaching and what's not a good teaching. So as we look at the issue of emptiness, which, as I said, is an issue of discernment, we have to focus on what role it plays in the pursuit of happiness or in the pursuit of putting an end to, ha- end to suffering. In other words, if you believe in emptiness, what does it lead you to do? And the things it leads you to do, are they wise or not? Do they really produce happiness or not? That's the big question. So this also means how is the concept meant to be used? What role does it play? Because um, there's an analogy that the, teach, the Dharma is like a snake. If you grab the snake at the, you know, the wrong place, it's going to turn around and bite you. Um, 
So how are we going to grab emptiness by the head and avoid the teeth? <laughs> or if you want, there's another analogy for the path is that it, the path is like medicine. Again, some medicines can be poisonous if they're used wrong. So how do we use the teaching on emptiness so that it's not poisonous? I'd like to start first with, we're going to do this fairly chron- chronologically, start first with the Pali Canon. A lot of people believe that emptiness began with Nagarjuna, or Nagarjuna, however you pronounce it. I prefer the first one. Um, but you look back in the Pali Canon, you find there's a, f- a fairly systematic teaching on emptiness already there. And because it tends to be so sloughed over, I'd like to spend a lot of, em- a lot of time on this particular aspect of the, the history. In this brief history of emptiness, we're going to focus most attention at this point. I must admit that when I started this out, I thought I'd do it just a fairly objective sort of put on my hat as an historian and take you through it fairly objectively and let you let you make your own judgment. And of course you're going to make your own judgment at the end anyhow. But I must admit that I have my view of what happened, happened to emptiness in the course of its history is a, is a stu- study of decline and fall. <laughs> so I'm warning you ahead of time that that's where my bias is. But, so let's start where it gets good. Okay. <laughs> The most important thing you have to understand about emptiness in the Pali Canon is that it actually has two meanings. The Buddha uses the concept of emptiness in two different contexts, and they mean different things in the different contexts. However, ultimately they come to the same point. It's just two different routes to get you to a particular point here. The first context, the Buddha talks about emptiness as a meditative dwelling. It's a way that you get your mind into states of meditation and then learn to understand the meditation, meditative state that you've gotten into. So that's the first meaning of emptiness. The second meaning of emptiness is as an attribute of the objects of your experience. So instead of being a state of your mind, it's an attribute of the water pitcher, the V8 juice, the table, everything, the people around you. And there are differences between the two. The first one, emptiness emptiness of meditative dwelling, is an issue of bringing the mind to a state of concentration. You focus on a particular perception. Let me give you the outline first and then we'll go into, into it in detail. You focus the mind on a particular perception learn to get it to settle down there. In other words, you can focus on this room as atoms or you can focus on the room as space. Now this doesn't mean you don't see other things in the, in the room. It's just that that's the concept that you're going to focus on, the label that you apply. You can think of it as a space, you can think of all these people in here as atoms. Sort of forget about the fact that they're people, just think that they're you know, these conglomerations of atoms sitting here. And you just hold on to that perception. Once you've held on to that perception, then you look at the state of mind that you have in that mode of perception and look for where there is disturbance and where there is no disturbance. The word for disturbance in the Pali Canon is dharata, D-A-R-A-T-H-A, which is related to the word dara, which means tension. So if there's any tension or disturbance at all in that state of awareness, you want to know that it's there. And as for anything else there, where there is no tension, where there is no disturbance, you say, okay, it's empty of disturbance. That's where the word emptiness comes in. And the Buddha advises first going out, not sitting in a room like this filled with people, but going out into the wilderness. And he says, you go out and just think of the fact, well, okay, now I'm in the wilderness. 
and just surround yourself with that perception. And you realize, okay, now that I'm in the wilderness, the things that would have disturbed me in the village, all the people, all the issues, all the noise, they're not here. And if any thoughts come up in the mind that are related to village issues, you say, just put them aside, because it's not relevant to what's right here, right now. We focus only on what's relevant to that current experience. I had a experience of this several years back when I was in Zion County. I was climbing uh, Angel's Landing, and it was, you know, you, you see how monks, you know, what monks wear on their feet. They're just these little flip-flops, and they're totally useless as you're climbing Angel's Landing. So I decided to go barefoot, and it was getting hot. And so I took off my robe and I tied it like a sash around my waist. And as I was climbing up with the lay attendant. We could hear these people coming down. We were talking about you know, how wonderful it was to be just here, so, totally surrounded by sandstone, no people at all. And then all of a sudden, these people come down the trail. And their perception was not wilderness. Their perception was the, the modeling and acting agency they worked with back in L.A. And we could hear them, you know, 100 yards away, talking about this actor, this model, this actress, whatever. And our first reaction, of course, was just that. I mean, here you are in the wilderness. Why are you carrying your office around in the wilderness? The conclusion to the story, though, was, was even funnier. Um, they come around to Ben and they see me. And, you know, being members of an acting agency, they say, look, 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 look. It looks like we're in Tibet. Doesn't it feel like we're in Tibet? <laughs> get a picture. <laughs> oh, and look, he's got bare feet. Make sure you get his bare feet, too. <laughs> So much perception of wilderness, and <laughs> every now and then you wish you had an you had an agent you could hand you know, say had a card from your agent. You say, "Talk to my agent first before you take my picture." <laughs> that was one of those times. So. But what the Buddha is saying is, you get out into the wilderness and you notice any thoughts that come up in the mind that have nothing to do with the wilderness, you drop. You just hold on to this perception. There's nothing but wilderness all around you. Then he says, then you, get, then you refine that perception. You say, just perceive things as earth. They're just the perception of solidity all around you. So then you realize you're surrounded just nothing but earth, which is an even more infinite perception, because the whole world is earth. And he says, you just don't think about the, the, the crevasses or ravines or the mountains or anything, just the fact that it's all earthness. It's just one perception that fills everything. And then you notice, okay, what, what disturbance is left there? Well, there's just that sense of oneness that's based on the perception of Earth. And aside from that, there's no disturbance at all. It's empty of any other disturbance. So the pattern here is one, you settle on a perception, hold it in mind, and then you look, say, okay, where is there a disturbance here? Where is there any tension here? And you find, as you get more and more precise, that the actual, the only disturbance left is the oneness of mind that you've built around your perception. Otherwise, it's totally empty of disturbance. And then from there, you go to the more formless realm. Do you think infinite space? And infinite space, I mean, it goes actually you know, between the atoms and out even further than the Earth. It's more encompassing and even less disturbance. So what you're doing is you're seeing, basically you begin to get more and more sensitive. You know, we talked earlier about being sensitive to what you're doing. Okay, it's the, 
the perception that you're doing, that's the only disturbance at this point. Everything else is empty of disturbance. So again, it goes back to that principle of look at what you're doing, seeing where there's harm done. In this case, the harm is is very gentle harm. It's just a little bit of tension in the mind. And then once you see that precisely, you drop that, and the mind will go to a deeper state of concentration. Because then you settle in the new perception. When you leave the perception of space, there's infinite consciousness. From infinite consciousness, there's nothingness. From nothingness, you settle on the perception of neither perception or non-perception, and that's get very, very refined. And then you get to what the Buddha calls the themeless um, concentration of awareness. This is where the mind is centered, but there's no particular object that it's centered on. Kind of an, an unsupported concentration. And he says, okay, look here and see what disturbances are there. It gets more and more and more and more refined as you go along. But ultimately, if you look really carefully, you'll find that even this themeless concentration of awareness, that is fabricated. It's put together. And again, it's something that you've done. And again, see the connection here. It's like a, you know, getting more and more sensitive to what you're doing and getting sensitive, in this case, just to the very, very minor level of stress that's caused by what you've done what you fabricated, what you put together. He's trying to make you very, very sensitive to the fact that these states are put together. This is something you tend to forget when you get into good, strong states of concentration. You settle down, you say, I don't see that I'm doing anything at all, I'm just sitting here in the infinitude of consciousness. And you forget that the only reason you're there is because of something you've done. It's that perception that's holding you there. And most of us tend not to see that. But he's trying to make you sensitive to that fact, because then you can see that it's fabricated, and then you can take it apart. And then finally, you get to total freedom from any kind of fabrication. And this is how you do it. You look at what you've got in your this state of concentration. You see where there's a disturbance, and you appreciate the emptiness of disturbance around it. So that you can see very clearly, okay, what, what is it that I'm doing that's causing the disturbance? So in this context, emptiness has a very positive connotation. It's a sense of no disturbance. And ultimately, he says, when you get to the, st- the unfabricated, okay, then that, he says, is the ultimate emptiness. Because at that point, you're not doing anything at all that's causing any disturbance. The only disturbance is just simply the fact that you still have a body, and it still functions. But there's nothing that the mind is doing in the present moment to disturb itself. That's the end of suffering. We got there pretty quick, didn't we? <laughs> We're only, what, 25 minutes into the presentation. So in this sense, emptiness has a very positive meaning. Seeing the lack of disturbance around whatever little tiny disturbance it is that you're creating. Learning to appreciate that lack of disturbance and then focus on dropping the disturbance that you are creating. So it's focusing your attention on, okay, what are you still doing that's still causing any kind of stress at all? And you do this by appreciating the emptiness around that stress. The other meaning of emptiness, emptiness as an attribute of objects of consciousness, or attribute of the objects of your experience, emptiness here means something else. He says you have to see that it's empty of self or empty of anything pertaining to a self. In other words, it's not you, it's not yours. 
Now, looking at the room around here, it's easy to you know, say, this is not my room. I'm not responsible for it. You get closer, though, inside. You get, start with your body. And the Buddha is saying, see this as not yours. Or I'm not pertaining to you. Now, John Lee, my teacher's teacher, was once approached by one of his students. He says, people come and tell me that, hey, you're a Buddhist. Your body isn't yourself. So how are you complaining? Why are we hitting your body? <laughs> if we went ahead and hit your body, why would you complain? And he didn't know how to answer. And John Lee said, tell him that I've borrowed it. I've got to take good care of it. <laughs> so it doesn't mean that the body is totally useless. But you have to realize, okay, it doesn't really belong to you. Because it's going to come a time when you have to give it up. And even before you have to give it up, it's going to do a lot of things that you didn't tell it to do. Like when it starts growing old. It doesn't ask permission. It doesn't even notify you. You have to check and you have to discover on your own that all of a sudden this or that doesn't work. And the same applies to your feelings, your perceptions, your thought constructs, even your sensory consciousness. The Buddha says, view all of these things as neither not yourself or, or pertaining to yourself. Why should you do this? He says, because you can, this is the only way that the king of death can't see you. Which is a metaphorical way, saying this is the only way that you're, you're, free, from, you're free from death, you, get, you attain the deathless. So as you notice, these are two very different ways of looking at, or using the concept of emptiness. The first concept, as a meditative dwelling, focuses on the issue of the presence of the absence of stress which, as you all know, is one of the three characteristics that you know, the Buddha has you focus on. Actually, stress or disturbance would qualify both as inconstancy and as stress. Whereas the other one focuses on lack of self. That's this is the not-self teaching. That's the third of the three characteristics. The first meaning of emptiness has a positive connotation, lack of stress. Whereas the second one seems to have a more negative connotation. These things that you want to hold on to as being yourself, you're being told you can't hold on to them. There's a sense of deprivation here. The first type of emptiness is something that's to be pursued. You strive for a greater and greater absence of disturbance, more and more emptiness in your meditation. Whereas the, the use of the second meaning of, of emptiness as an attribute of objects is meant to induce disenchantment, dismay. You realize that you've been struggling all your life just to keep this body going, to give it food, clothing, shelter, medicine. And what does it do? It grows old and it starts dying and it, it doesn't die nicely sometimes. It causes you all kinds of trouble in the meantime. In fact, in, in some of the passages, the Buddha has the, uses the image of a magic show. That's something that looks substantial that you could really depend on and you really realize you can't depend on it. It may seem to be yours, but it's not really yours. It just goes its own way. So keep in mind, okay, there are two radically different meanings of emptiness here. The question is, how do the two come together? And once we, once we finish with that, then I'll stop for questions, okay? I hope I haven't lost you by that time. Emptiness as a meditative dwelling focuses on looking at your experience in terms of the presence or absence of stress. When you see things in these terms, you automatically will look for ways to reduce that stress. If you see that it's something you're doing and you don't have to do it, you drop it. 
I mean, even drug addicts, when they realize that they don't have to do it and they see that they don't have to continue their drug habit, then they'll stop. As long as they don't see any alternative, that they won't stop. But when they see that there's an alternative that really is a possibility, it's something that they can get their imagination around, then they're on their way out. So once you see the presence, or see stress as something that's there, something that you've done and you don't have to do it, you can drop it. And it turns out that in, the, in these meditative states, that the stress in the meditative dwelling is precisely the oneness of mind that you've created around that perception. Now keep that in mind, because that's going to be a big issue as we get on to the later history of emptiness. Okay. Oneness of mind is stressful. Okay. It's a very minor stress, but it still has an element of stress in it. Okay. The emptiness is an attribute of objects, deals with the whole issue of clinging. The Buddha says the reason we suffer is because of our clinging. In fact, he often equates clinging with suffering. This clinging is based on craving. And one of the foremost types of clinging is clinging to your sense of self. So in this case, to end stress, you have to abandon the clinging by abandoning the sense of stress, the sense of self. So this way, he wants you to look at objects of your clinging in such a way that is to induce a sense of disenchantment, a sense of wanting to give it back. In fact, he, they often use the word disgust, nibida. And that, that sounds kind of negative to us, but the disgust here is based on the idea that clinging is a kind of eating. We go around feeding on things all the time. And so he wants, yeah. So what he wants us to do is to get disgusted about the things we've been chewing on <laughs> all this time. In other words, to see that all things are unworthy of attachment. Okay, once you see these objects as empty of anything pertaining to yourself or belonging to yourself, your sense of self, which is the I am that you put around things, is based on two divisions. One you, is the issue of I and not I. You divide experience into what's you and what's not you, or what's yours and what's not yours. And the other thing that underlies the whole sense of self is the whole issue of existence and non-existence. Question of, behind your experience, do things really exist or not? Is there a self kind of behind your eyes, looking out through your eyes? Is there, is there no self there? Is there an actual object behind this table or is it just um, color? Or is it just your experience? This gets to the old, old issue. Is there, real, is there some real substance to experience? Is it all, all totally in the mind? Again, your sense of self. Is it something that's totally illusory? Is there nothing at all back there? Or is there something back there? And the Buddha basically is going to be telling us to avoid those issues. Okay? Yeah. <laughs> because once you avoid those issues, then you can look at what the real issue is, is the presence or absence of stress. Now, to go into that a little bit more in detail, your sense of self can be defined in four ways. Depending on, you, you've probably heard about the five khandhas or the five aggregates. You can relate to any one of those aggregates in any one of four ways. For example, you take form, which is the body. You can either identify yourself with the form, say, this is me, 
course, when the form gets disintegrated, there's no more you. You can say, this is mine. There's something behind that that owns the body, but is not identical with the body. You can decide that you are inside the body. I think there wasn't that some some sort of what they called the homunculus. It was this little kind of soul that was inside your body. That was your real self. Or the body is inside you. You you are this sense of infinite or infinitude, and the physical body is something that's simply inside yourself. This much larger sense of self, a connected self, a, a, an infinite self. So those are the four different ways that we tend to identify ourselves. And the Buddha says you've got to drop all four. As for the issue of existing and not existing, in other words, he says, but he also says, he refuses to answer the question, is there really a self back there or is there not? Someone once asked, only once in the Pali Canada does anyone throw that question to him and he says, doesn't answer. Because he says, either way you go on that, is there a self behind all this or is there not? He says, either way you go on that question, again, it's screwed up. So it's not a question to ask. As for existing and non-existing, this again refers to the question of whether there is something behind the raw data of experience. And he will advise that you drop that one as well. You see, they see things simply as interdependent, but the question of whether there is something behind, say this, in a real, you know, in a real aluminum behind the aluminum in the can, or if it's just our perception of it, he's, don't go there. So in that you don't go behind experience in this direction, you don't go behind experience in the other direction, what's left? Well, you find what's simply left is just actions and results of actions, and particularly stress and lack of stress. So ultimately, in a more roundabout way, he's getting you to the same point that he got you to before. Looking simply at what, it's what's there in terms of what you're doing that's causing stress, what you're doing that's not causing stress, and then focus on this issue of well, what you're doing that's causing stress. Is it necessary? If it's not necessary, you drop, drop it. So it's in this way that the two different meanings of emptiness finally come to the same point. Trying to get you to look at your experience solely in terms of presence or absence of stress and how it's related to what you're doing. So in the one sense he uses emptiness as a positive thing that you want more and more emptiness of this lack of stress. And that will induce you to get to deeper and deeper stages of meditation and ultimately to let go of whatever it is you're doing to fabricate your experience. The other meaning of emptiness is you see that the things that you looked at here in terms of either being yourself or not yourself or belonging to yourself, not belonging to yourself, or as whether there's something behind it or not. Is there something really existing there or is there nothing really existing there? He says, don't go there. When you learn to peel away those issues, what you're left again with is presence of stress, absence of stress. And once you've got that, then you focus again on the issue, how do you minimize the stress? From that point of view, you'll begin to see that your sense of self is something that you fabricated that you keep fabricating. Your idea of who you are is something that you keep doing. In fact, the poly, they have a poly term for this. It's called I-making and my-making. You make them up. 
And the question is, okay, instead of actually taking the, the concept seriously, you look at the process of the making. When you're making the sense of self, does it create stress or does it not? And you say, oh yeah, it does. Now there are places where it's useful to have a sense of self. You walk into the store and you want to buy something. It's good to know which is your wallet and which is somebody else's wallet. Okay? <laughs> right? <laughs> so it's not that your sense of self is always a bad thing, but you have to learn how to use it only when you need it and drop it when you don't. The Buddha doesn't want you to be, become non-functional in the world. You know? As long as you've got a body, you learn how to look after it. As long as you've got responsibilities, you look after them. But you realize, okay, this is something you make up for the time being and then you drop it when you no longer need it. So that's basically the whole issue. But in particular, he'll find ultimately, deep down inside, you want to look at, okay, just take apart this process so that you know when to do it, when not to do it. And ultimately you find, okay, when you don't have to do it, there's this huge lack of stress. And you bring the mind to a point ultimately in your meditation where you find, okay, it's nothing is fabricated at all. What's left is the deathless. Okay, you've made contact with the deathless, which is what the whole point of the teaching is all about. At that point, you've solved the problem. Okay, once you've solved that problem, then the Buddha lets you go. So, are there any questions on this? <laughs> if you think this is complex, where do we get to Nagarjuna? Okay. <laughs> are those states of concentration the same things that the Buddha was taught when he was a bodhisattva from the other teachers at the time? Yeah. So he he went through those steps and identified with those things that you were talking about, right? Mm -hmm. And then he had to let go of the different states in order... That was the difference. Um, and again, this is going to become an issue later on in the day. When you get to these really refined states, there's a tendency to say, hey, this is it. You know, infinite consciousness, how, you know, how, how good can it get? You know? Can't get better than this, most people will think. And he's asking you to turn around and look, okay, what are you doing that's keeping you in touch with that dimension and see where it is that's fabricated, see where it's stressful and then learn how to stop that. The difference is like you're finally getting through the jungle and getting on the road and then falling down and sleeping on the road as opposed to using the road to get you to where the road is supposed to take you. So most of his teachers then they said that that was like it, right? That was it, yeah. yeah. I've been kind of confused with... Um, how does one get beyond fabrication on mm -hmm. knowing one's fabricating and know it? Where is, you know, I asked a kind of question on Monday, trying to figure out how the person going through these steps of dismissing mm -hmm. the wilderness and the earth and the stuff like that and then getting to a state of non-fabrication. I think I heard you say that once one gets to that point, you make contact with the deathless. So there's no knowing as we know it through thought. Am I right? Not through thought, no. I mean, there's kind of a... This is one of the controversies of the tradition, but there is a kind of knowing that's not fabricated. And the only way you can get there is by having no intentions in the mind at that moment. And the way you get around the intention is and you realize that anything you do at that particular point, the whole purpose of concentration practice is to get you cornered. And that you realize that no matter where you step, the next moment, it's going to be an intention and there's going to be an element of stress. 
And it's learning how to drop the intention at that point without replacing it, well, let's say, the intention to drop the intention, which is it happens to drop. And you see it as it's happening. And you don't do anything. Okay, that's when things begin to open up and there's, there's a deathless. But it depends on, and this is going to get into some controversy, your ability to pull out of the concentrated state a little bit. And when, when you're really into these states, you can't analyze them at all. But there's a way of stepping back a little bit so that you don't totally drop it, and, it, and yet you're, you're, you're in it enough that you can actually look at what's happening. And particularly, you start looking around. Okay, what The image one of the teachers gave is of going into an empty room and saying, boy, is this room empty? Well, you're, it's not empty. You're standing in the room. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and it's learning to make your vision a little bit more all around. You say, oh, there's this in the room. Okay, let's get this out of the room. That's the trick. But it requires good, strong states of concentration. Notice that when we get a chance, I think maybe I'll just kind of go through the, the material this morning and then we'll go back through the, um, the readings this afternoon. But he talks about you have to get the mind really settled and really solid and really liking that state before you can start analyzing it. Otherwise, it's too rickety and when you pull back, the whole thing falls apart. The intention is intentional rather than natural. That's the problem. That's the trick. How do you drop the intention without without the intention? Mm -hmm. Um, My question is um, usually about ignorance. Usually, when people are going through either emotional state or sickness or um, whatever trauma the person perceives it is. It's hard for the person to see beyond that. So how would you, you know, advise if a person going through a divorce and severe cancer or whatever trauma, how would that person to, you know, use his emptiness to help that person? Okay, in a case like that, <coughs> it's helpful if the person has already had some practice. If you're talking to somebody who's totally neophyte in the practice, I wouldn't bring up the issue of emptiness. Okay. <laughs> Is there any way to help them to lead them that way? or? Well, the important thing at that point is say if, if, there's a, if there's, say if it's a disease, is to get some sense of the awareness in the mind that separate from the pain and to have them just learn how to stay with the observer. But emptiness is not one of those medicines you pull out of the cabinet you know, at this first sign of a headache. You know. it's, it requires a certain amount of stability in the practice already before you can make good use of it. But a state of ill—you're catching somebody with not any, not any background in, in, in the practice at all. You have them focus on the good things they've done in the past, whatever good states of mind they can put themselves into at that point. Um, my second question: What is how do you see the relation between emptiness and dependent origination? Okay. Um, <laughs> in the Pali Canon, it has one relationship. In Nagarjuna, it has another one. Okay. In the Pali Canon, again, it's this issue of not looking at whether things exist or don't exist, but simply as the presence of their arising and passing away. 
And particularly, I don't, you have to go searching through the, the factors of dependent core arising, but you find that buried way down in sort of the, the, the beginning factors is the element of intention. And that's the element that's going to determine, that plus the element of what they call attention, which is the questions you bring to things, that's going to determine the presence or absence of stress. One of the passages we're going to be getting to later in the day, where the Buddha said that people are consumed by one duality, between the duality between existence and non-existence. You know, again, is there something behind the play of phenomena in your experience, or is there nothing there? Does it really exist, or does it not exist? And he says, if you focus, as the mind is focusing on things arising, the whole idea of non-existence would not occur to you. Focus on things passing away, the idea, the idea of their existence wouldn't occur to you at that point. So he's trying to put you in a state of mind where you're not asking that question of existence or non-existence, just the arising and passing away of what? Stress and the causes of stress. And this whole pattern of stress and the causes of stress, that's dependent core arising. So the purpose here is to get you to look at your experience simply in terms of dependent core arising without asking the questions of what's behind it or what's not behind it, in terms of existence or non-existence. So you can look at, okay, what is your attention and what are your intentions doing to create stress? So that's the relationship between the two. Getting you, again, to focus strictly on the question of the presence or absence of stress and what you're doing about it, what you're doing to cause it. Independent core rising then is gives you a very detailed map of how to look at the comings and goings of stress. <coughs>